Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and uh, we're at the interview part of the show. Um, Today, um, we've got an author. He's written quite a few books, and there's a lot of there's a few that really interest me because they they kind of cover in history and uh, and death. And uh, so joining us, um, we've got Jeff MacArthur. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Some of your books now, the one, uh, Two Gun Heart, and the, the other one, old, uh, Dirty Old War, like both really interest me. Um, how do you get to where you were actually writing about these subjects? Because they're both kind of, you know, nonfiction, uh, true, true accounts, and a little bit more serious than, you know, um, than a lot of writing out there. So what, what drew you to that? Well, you know, the, the way I got uh, into writing the Two Gun Heart story was like basically a fluke. My father just kind of casually one day told me about uh, how the largest bank robbery in history took place in our hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska, and that uh, Al Capone's long-lost brother, who was a lawman in the area, helped get the money back. And he just kind of casually said that to me, like it was just a piece of conversation. And I just went, wait, wait, what? Tell me about this. And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should have asked my dad more about that uh, while he was still alive. But uh, unfortunately, my grandfather had died by that point, and he's the one who had told my dad. So, you know, he just didn't have any information. So over the next several years, I kept asking my dad to look into it. And finally, one day, I just went ahead and just looked at there was another book about Al Capone that mentioned the brother so, and it said that he lived in Homer, Nebraska, which is a tiny little town uh, about three hours north of Lincoln, where we were. And we were like, you know, I bet somebody up there knows about him. So we literally just took this long three-hour trip just on uh, faith thinking, 
Well, there there'll probably be somebody, you know, like usually there's like a little bar there or whatever. Uh the stereotype is true. You go in there, you know, and uh we asked about him and they were like, Oh, so and so knew about him. There's this little lady working in the back, comes out, yeah, and in fact one of his relatives is coming in in a few minutes and uh because he comes in it, like he came in every day to play dominoes or something like that. And he came up to us and uh first thing he said was, so you know he's a capone and we're like, Yeah, you know, we're, we're that's what we're kinda of fascinated by and he said, well, he's, unfortunately, he's not around here anymore. He's a long ways away. He's in Lincoln. We go all the way back there, look in the phone book. Turns out he lives pretty much around the corner from my dad. It was uh, Al, Richard Hart's son, or Al Capone's long-lost brother, whose name, real name was Vincenzo, went by the name Richard Hart. Uh, and his son, Harry Hart, was living around the corner. I called him up. His answering machine just uh, was literally, I got the answering machine, and uh, it was literally him saying, uh, this is Harry Hart, son of Two Gun Hart, and he had been waiting for all those years for somebody to come along and help tell his story. Uh, so yeah, so I just I became fascinated in, in terms of that. Started talking to him about it. Uh, they were very wary because so many people have taken any stories about the Capones and really exploited them. And it, it's you know from the beginning he's like I, I don't have any illusions about my uncle. I know the things he did, but there's more to our family, and nobody's ever been interested. So, you know, I said I was much more interested, and at that time I was more into trying to make movies than I was into books, but it slowly kind of morphed into this because I realized how, well, for several reasons, but mainly I just realized just uh, how good of a story this was and how much you could really fulfill. Um, I know that's more of an answer than, than you're asking, but that's kind of how that one came about, and, that, and then the sister book, uh, The Great Heist, uh, also came about that sort of way. Then with Dirty Old War, it was a completely different way. After I was done with this, I wanted to do something else. Like, I did three books about my home state of Nebraska in a row. And so I wanted to do something, you know, out more in the world. And I knew somebody. Oh, wait, no, it was, I had heard, I found out about somebody who uh, was a, a survivor from South Vietnam who had come to the U.S. And his story, I was just like, nobody knows the stories of the South Vietnamese soldiers. They We've heard about the Viet Cong, the, even the North Vietnamese are, you know, uh, the enemies. And of course, we know a million stories about the U.S. as if it was our war, but it was really their war. And it was really a war in trying to defend this, you know, burgeoning country of, of South Vietnam. Uh, whatever one's opinions are, positive or negative, or whatever, that's really what they were at least fighting for, was for their burgeoning nation. <clears throat> and so I was like, what's the story here? So I started trying to learn about that, and as I was trying to learn that, I befriended somebody who was a uh, uh, an American soldier, and I was less interested in that story because it's like so many have been, uh, so many books have been done about that. But his story was so amazing; like there were so many different aspects to it. I'm like, you know, you hear about like, you, you, there's always been sort of one side said about it of just the horrors of war, and not that that's that shouldn't be told, but there's just a lot of interesting things, a lot of things that just you wouldn't expect. And the more I talked to him and the more I talked to another friend, uh, another person I got to know who was an American soldier, I just started realizing from all these different perspectives, there are these really amazing stories, uh, both in regards to the horror of war, but also just in regards to just fascinating. So I just started going, you know, I'd really like to do something next on just the different points of view of this war. Uh, and, oh, sorry, just real quick as well, throw on this as well. The, probably the most bizarre of those stories, uh, because as I, as I was writing this, there was a friend of ours, my girlfriend and I, uh, this friend of ours named Miju, we have known for years, 
And one day while waiting inside of a taco place for her, for her boyfriend's birthday, he just starts joking about how she's a princess. And then he goes, yeah, no, she's a, she's an actual princess. And we're like, what? Well, yeah, oh yeah, right. Cause you know, Miju is very much a princess. He goes, no, she's actual royalty of South Vietnam. And I went, wait, what? And turned out that there was a royal family of Vietnam that had, they had abdicated the throne, but they still kept track of who the royal family was and everything. And they had a whole story of escape from South Vietnam. So, and they had also been waiting for all this time to, to have their stories told. So that's the thing. I'm always fascinated by these stories that are, uh, they, they've not been told. They're, they're like on the cusp of something we've heard about, but there's, it's a different angle, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. But I, I would think that um, I've done quite a few nonfiction true crime books, but I would think that especially the, uh, the war uh, book, um, it would be kind of uh, emotional in a bit, wouldn't it, to write something like that, to get these stories? It, it actually it was, but you know, I mean, it was weird. I I actually mentioned to my girlfriend, and excuse me if this is a little t TMI, but yeah, at one point while I was working on it, I kind of said to her that I uh, that for some reason I, it wasn't it wasn't hitting me as hard. Like I would write some things, and it would be a little bit emotional, but I it was like I was kind of going, I feel like there should be more emotion here. Or I feel like I should be feeling more. I'm putting the, the emotion on the page, but I'm not. I'm feeling something, but I feel like I should feel something more because what these people went through are just is, is some of it is, in particular is really horrendous. Like everything we've heard from the soldiers' point of view is nothing compared to what the boat people went through uh, as they tried to get it out. I mean, it's like around a million dead or something like that, and, and just the, the horrors as they tried to escape. But uh, and this is the, the part that may be a little TMI, but. Uh, basically, when I got done with the book, I, I finished it in the middle of the night. Everybody was asleep, and I. Uh, I literally pushed save, and it was like all that emotion had been uh, held up inside. I didn't even realize where it was, uh, and suddenly I realized that I had I had subconsciously been holding it in to get the book done, and I just, I lost it. I just broke down crying. I, everything that had happened, like every story I had heard, every bit of information just all hit me at once, and I just, I, I just absolutely uh, toppled over crying my eyes out for close to an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was your fault. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. All of it. Right. I mean, all of it's your fault. We know every, all these bad things are. It's, we just go, it's Jeff. Yeah, he does. It. Right. They're all pointing loose. their fingers at me. That's right. Don't let him loose. Keep him back. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. So it's but it's it's it, you know it it does change a person. I I know a lot of my books have some of them haven't, but some do. You know, it's just. Um, I guess it, I guess it's probably because when you meet people that tell you the story, when you see them live, I think that's probably more effective than when you just read about it in the paper. Yeah, it is, and you know, I mean, and that's sort of part of what all hit me at once. Because there's something about when I'm interviewing, there's you know, part of it is like realizing what I'm hearing, but at the same time, there's also somewhat, somewhat of a you don't realize history while you're living through it in a way, you know, and so. Talking to people that I mean, and also there's a sort of the aspect of me trying to think of how am I going to collect this information and, and form, you know, format it and stuff like that. So there's a part of me that can't completely be as present as I, you know, could be. But, uh, but actually, it's sort of somewhat of a good thing because some, again, sometimes with these stories, I'd probably break down crying and never be able to write anything down. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's like I, I sort of I grab all of it into my mind and then, yeah, at, at the end, 
particularly in this case, it was the, uh, you know, just seeing all the faces again in my mind's eye, you know, and it was as if I was back there hearing their stories, and this time I was finally able to allow it out loud. Uh, on a more positive side, actually, uh, but with, uh, with the other book, Too Good Heart, you were talking about, that one had a more uh, uplifting one in that because basically after, uh, after Al died and after the mother died and after Richard died, or Vincenzo, the oldest brother, uh, after they all died, basically the family kind of split apart, particularly because people kept telling the story of Al and what criminal he was, and a lot of people started having feeling a lot of shame for being a Capone. And so there was very much of a, you know, um, splitting of the family. But then as this book started to get written, uh, more of the fam more and more of the family started hearing, hey, somebody's doing something about a positive aspect of our family. And so they started giving little bits and pieces of information. And I started getting some things about the family that nobody's ever had before for a book and certain pictures, certain photos in the book that have never been published before. And I got some advice from everybody, including Al's own granddaughter, uh, and started hearing like little bits and pieces. And then, and I started hearing that the, the family was talking again more and more. And the, one of the most exciting things I saw on my Facebook feed, because I became friends with a lot of them, was at some point, you know, paging through various different posts and then come upon a picture of them in Italy, uh, all sitting with not with a bunch of people I didn't know, and I read the captions, and it's the first time that the, the Capone family had ever gone back to Italy, and they're meeting with the Capone family that's still there, because there's, of course, still Capones that are still there, and they met up for the first time in over 100 years, and they were having dinner together, and they'd gone there because they were doing research for this book, but while there, they reconnected. So this was the Capone family reconnecting with each other. Uh, and that's one of those things where it's just like, it's, you know, I don't even know where to put it. It was such a, it, it made me cry in the other direction, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So. It's, it's interesting because the, um, uh, it sh kind of shows human nature, but because Al Capone is the most mm -hmm. popular because of the bad things, right? right. And, and that's, that's who we kind of... Um, focus on more so than uh, let's say someone that did something a little bit more positive uh, why were they so different these two brothers when they're in the same family and um, you know growing up together and they ended up kind of taking different directions you know yeah that's a good question because you, you would think uh, that that's the, the, the obvious uh, difference between them is of course one being on the side of the law and one uh, being a criminal but the uh, in in many ways, actually, they were very very similar in terms of uh, they were both so um, ambitious. They just were ambitious in whatever direction they happened to be going. Um, and really, when it comes right down to it, I don't think either of them chose their path per se. It was more like I mean, Richard chose his path more. Than, and by the way, I should explain to the audience his, his name was his birth name was Vincenzo. Uh, Vincenzo Capone, but then after he ran away from home as a teenager, he changed it a couple. He changed his name a couple times. Ended up settling on Richard Hart, not because the Capone name was so uh, was uh, so infamous because it wasn't yet. It's just purely because there was so much hate, so much uh, bigotry against Italian Americans that he didn't want anybody to know he was Italian. So he changed his name to Richard Hart. Uh, and Hart came after a uh, movie star uh, that existed that, that was big at the time, William S. Hart. Anyway, uh, so Richard, 
yes, he chose to go run away from home. Yes, he chose to join the army and then wound up becoming a, you know, a, a lawman. But it was mostly because he wanted to be like the heroes in the movies. So if he happened to be watching gangster movies, he probably would have gone in that direction. If he would have been watching, you know, it was just purely he wanted to live that fantasy that he saw, you know, on the screen. And he went at it after it with full gusto. With Al, uh, if you've ever seen the movie um, Gangs of New York, uh, that neighborhood is where they were growing up. And so the Five Points game was really where he was growing up, what really was what he was surrounded by. And so that's sort of the community he grew up in. He actually, well, after he got married, he tried to pull out of the, the whole thing. In fact, I think the line, every time I, I tried to get out, they pull me back in. I think that was inspired by Al, because I do, uh, by Al Capone, because uh, I knew that, I know the writer was inspired by all that. But anyway, he basically tried to leave. But his father died, and, and in the Italian tradition, the oldest brother would usually take over for the family. That, and it wasn't, you know, because there was a lot of sexism, the, the mother would not be able to care for the family. So you'd have the oldest brother would sort of take the role of, of the father and take care of the family. Um, now, but the oldest brother was Richard, was Vincenzo, who had run away from home. Uh, then there were two other brothers who were in and out of prison all the time. So Al was kind of the first in line that was responsible enough to do something, but he couldn't—he uh, he could not take care of the whole family because there were several other uh, family members as well. He really could not take care of them and his own family on the on the income he currently had. So, but meanwhile, this guy uh, Johnny Turio was setting up some things in Chicago, and that's when Al was like, "Okay, I'll take this job so that I can, you know, take care of my family." And the rest is history. He lit and the thing is, Al went over there, and he was just in in anything. Al went all the way, like regardless of the job. He could be if somebody had made him a police. In fact, somebody even pointed that out. There was a military guy who saw him one time at the Navy Yards, as and when Al was a little kid, and this guy saw little young Al Capone shouting at some people, and he said, "That kid is going to make some something of himself one day, and if if a wise guy gets hold of him." It's going to be trouble. I don't forget the exact line, but it's something of that of that uh, nature. He basically, said they, somebody's got to guide this guy because this guy is full bore whatever direction he goes in, uh, and it's just the gangster got to him first. It's part of the problem with society is when you uh, when you push aside a certain group of people, there's going to be somebody among them who's a genius and who or who goes full bore into whatever he goes into, and if if all he has is gang line, uh, is um, gangsters. That's what he's going to become good at, and that's exactly what happened with Al Capone. So the two were just both very, very much going full bust into whatever they did. That's just the path they were on. So. I have to wonder about how they got along, because I, I, I'm thinking that um, there's also something different in the character, because, you know, Richard, uh, he was like, um, you know, when the alcohol was illegal and the production of it, he was an enforcement of that. So, and meanwhile, Al Capone, you know, uh, loved his liquor. So, I, I just wonder, did they did they get along being so different? Well, they uh, when Richard left, uh, or Vincenzo left, and uh, went off to become Richard Hart, um, he disappeared from the family for many years, and uh, there was no uh, for a long time. It was a mystery as to when exactly he came back and reconnected with the family. Um, my belief was that it was in 1924 when Al happened to become, uh, or happened to start um, basically being in charge of the rackets, uh, because there was a newspaper reporter who later uh, who later stated that he saw the two together, and basically the two of them agreed to stay out of each other's territory, and I believe that was basically when Richard went back to Al and said, hey, 
stay out of, you know, uh, stay out of Nebraska, you stay out of Nebraska, I'll stay out of Chicago kind of a thing. Um, interestingly enough, it seems from that guy's statements and from, uh, from a number of others later on, uh, that Al was very gregarious, was very excited about seeing his brother again, which actually makes sense because when they were kids, uh, uh, Richard or Vincenzo would take Al to Staten Island where there were horses and he would take him, or they, they had, there was like this horse stables, and he would take Al horseback riding. Uh, and Al, as a little kid, just loved it. And he was apparently very heartbroken when Richard disappeared because that was sort of like his favorite thing to do, was just sort of escape from the, the constant gangland violence he was, he was used to seeing. Um, and so when he reconnected with him, he was so excited, but apparently Richard was much more standoffish, was much more of like, well, you're a gangster, I'm a, you know, and he had really defined himself by that hero character of, you know, I'm the hero, you're the villain. And that, once again, kind of apparently, it seems to have broken Al's heart, but eventually the, uh, the um, BIA and the Office of Prohibition, all of them, turned their back on Richard, and he had nowhere to turn but to go back to the family. Uh, he didn't become a gangster with them or anything like that, but they basically helped take care of him. They, they welcomed, welcomed him back with open arms. And apparently, yeah, Al was always just like, my brother, I, you know, want, I want you back kind of a thing. Did he dislike what Al did? Did he like his, you know, his whole gangster thing and, and all this stuff? Was he, were they able to kind of get along in that way? Or did he just, Richard, sort of stay away from it? Or what do you think happened there? I get the idea. Now, it is one thing. Some of it is semi-speculation because um, this, this is a family that was uh, all about secrets. In fact, Richard kept his own heritage uh, secret from his own family. His own family did not know until, what was it, the 1940s, I think, uh, that, uh, yeah, that they, were, you know, that they were related to this very, very infamous family. Um, so, yeah, so... They, they, there was no, there, there's no definitive information except for like little bits and pieces of like witness accounts here and there. And uh, like, for instance, they, they would meet on the uh, Indian reservations and a lot of the natives would have later say, we, we saw Al Capone talking with our prohibition officer, you know, our BAA agent uh, on the reservation. We couldn't understand why until later. You get, I get the idea that it was, that he was still friendly with them. He was friendly with them, but it was because of the fact that he kept meeting with them. But I also get the idea that uh, that he still saw him kind of as, you know, as the, the, the bad guy, the guy who's doing... And it really was sort of Richard had somewhat of a black and white view because of the fact that he was so much into the whole idea of... He, he, he uh, threw himself into the role of what he had seen as the cowboy. You know what I mean? And even... He, actually, he even wore cowboy outfits like full head-to-toe, uh, had two six-shooters at his side, rode a horse, even though it was the 1920s. And so you get the idea that this was a guy who just sort of wanted to be the, the cowboy from the movies, and then when he saw his brother this way, he didn't react very uh, happily to him. That, and you get that sense from the fact that he kind of kept pushing him away, but Al kept coming to visit him. Um, but later on, he then opened up a bit once, like, once his own offices had really uh, turned their backs on him. Do you know why uh, Richard uh, left home? You know, that's the big mystery that uh, to this day has never been found out. We've never, we've always wanted to know. We've always tried to understand. Um, I would ask Harry about, like Harry was, you know, like I said, he was always wanting his father's story to be told. But I would ask him some of these personal things 
And he would shrug, like, why should I know that? And I'm like, but you're the one wanting his story told. Um, but yeah, that's the thing is he, he said, you know, you never think to ask your father these things. And his father died when he was 60. So, you know, he was pretty young and, and by the, you know, a lot of us, we don't think to ask our parents about these amazing stories until they're a little bit older. And so he never really thought to ask him some of these questions, didn't really get to know what his mother was like, you know, personally. So some of those aspects he never got to find. And now he's, oh, well, I shouldn't say now. He became curious as we were writing the book. Unfortunately, Harry's passed away by now. But uh, while we were writing the book, Harry was like, I really wish I had asked him why he left home because he probably would have just answered, but it's just nobody ever up. And now you look at it and it's like, there really doesn't seem to be any reason why he would leave except... I mean, we kind of got the idea because there was a, uh, a show called the 101 Wild West Show that had uh, that William S. Hart was in charge of, and it happened to be in Staten Island at that time. And it left mm-hmm. right when uh, Richard left, and the next time we, he appears, it's, he's in Oklahoma in the 101 Wild West Show. So I kind of get the idea, probably he was there maybe riding the horses or something. Somebody said, probably said, hey, we're going to do this show. If you want to come, you'd have to come like right now. And it was probably one of those things where it was just like, I either take the opportunity right now or I have to lose it forever. Um, he apparently knew he was going because <clears throat> Al was walking with him down to the docks that day. And Richard said to him, not today, Al, today you're staying behind. And the last time Al saw him for decades then was uh, Richard getting onto that onto the ferry and just disappearing into the distance. Have you met Deidre Capone or talked to her? Yeah, yeah, she consulted with me a bit on this. Yeah, well, she's been on the on the show a few times, uh, and she sort of has. Um, I would say, in my eyes, that she was pretty. Um, she idolized Al Capone. Yeah, um, she doesn't think he's really been a was was a bad person. Was part of any of the crimes like uh, Valentine's Day massacre and stuff like that, which I you know I understand because to her she was a little girl and and he was probably a, a great uncle, you know, buying her a bike and toys and mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. I, what's your feeling on that? Was Al Capone as bad as they say? So uh, probably the best quote I ever heard on this was uh, when we were first meeting, my, uh, my father and I were first, first meeting Harry, and I remember very vividly, he had a trunk that was bigger than him, and he was moving some things into it, he was opening it up, and we asked him what he thought of his uncle, and he, uh, he leaned on it, and he says, you know, my uncle was no angel, but he's been very misunderstood, and I think that quote, the more I learned about him, the more I feel that one quote is, nails it right on the head, because uh, no, he was not innocent of a lot of things. He did do a lot of really horrible things. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, it's, it's difficult in our culture, particularly the American culture, to, uh, to be able to look at someone like Al Capone because we tend to look at things as all one way or the, all the other. And he is the definition of shades of gray. Uh, some of the things he did were really horrible. Uh, and, but then there were some times where he was really taking care of the Italian-American community. And really, in many ways, his life was kind of decided for him. It was, you know, like I was saying earlier, he tried to kind of get out of that life, but he kept getting shoved into it. Um, And his life was basically as a result of the terrible way that Italian-Americans were treated at that time. Uh, And so, you know, I I certainly wouldn't want to excuse him. This is what I mean by it's like hard for our culture to, uh, um, to understand him, because on the one hand, 
I want to say, you know, hey, <clears throat> he's not as bad as you guys say. But then it starts sounding like I'm excusing him and saying, no, he was, you know, there's an angel. He never did. He was a Robin Hood. He never did anything. He's like, no, no, he, he still did these terrible things. And then it starts sounding like, oh, he's, he, it was reprehensible. There's no positive side or whatever. And it's, it's like, well, no, he, he was somebody who got stuck in a certain, uh, path, um, did some really bad things, but he was also doing, you know, basically navigating as best he could through life and trying to help his community. Uh, and kind of had a mentality of the rest of the, the world kind of go to hell because that's what the rest of the world was doing to him and his family for so long. It was very much of like, we got ours, you all can go to hell. So once he got his, he was like, we're getting ours, you all can go to hell. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a lot of shades of gray in my opinion. Yeah. He was into <laughs> S&M then. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're saying. Uh, we, we get it. <laughs> that's what the that's what the you know the young guys listening will be going oh yeah I know what this is about. Um, <laughs> so I want so why why did Richard Hart um, leave the law enforcement? You kind of touched off on saying that he was kind of um, they turned his, their back on him. So yeah. what what happened there? What, well, he uh, you know he was so much into do, uh, um, into doing the right thing that uh, he sometimes didn't play the game. First of all, actually, he switched. He was initially a prohibition officer, and he switched from that to the BIA, and the reason was because he kept seeing all this corruption. I mean, that's one thing we always learn about when we learn about prohibition was how much the officer of prohibition was corrupt and how much the law enforcement, particularly of the liquor laws, was itself corrupt. And he was somebody who could, he was truly untouchable. He could not be bought off. He was all about... Uh, because he defined himself completely as the hero, as this cowboy who rides into town, you know, everything. So for him, it didn't matter how much you paid. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, that wasn't, you know, that it went against his definition, the definition of his personality. Um, one of the best stories was at one point he, he actually was driving a car because he had captured somebody. He's trying to drive home. He gets lost in the rain and winds up in the wrong town in this small, you know, in Nebraska, that can happen. You get on the wrong road when it's raining. <laughs> um, but rather than just turning around and going wherever he's supposed to go, he just finds out where's the closest, um, <clears throat> oh, where, who's selling liquor in town. So he finds out who he is, punches the guy, knocks him unconscious, puts him in the back of the car, drives both of these guys to the uh, sheriff's office. And he says, where's the sheriff <clears throat> or where's the local sheriff? I've got this guy who's selling liquor. And the deputy who's there points at the guy who uh, who he just knocked out and is like, that's the sheriff. So he started seeing more and more of that sort of corruption. And it, it kept getting kind of uh, worse and worse. So he, he ended up leaving the Office of Prohibition, became a BIA agent, which is Bureau of Indian Affairs, started working with the natives. Uh, he would learn their culture, learn their language. He was he just every job he, he went into, he just completely dove into it. And the job kept moving him uh, further and further west to different reservations. And then finally, he sees this one superintendent he's working for who was, uh, who was corrupt himself. He was taking bribes and all that sort of thing. And he pointed it out. And rather than the, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington going, Hey, all right, got, you know, one of our guys, we're going to get rid of him. They instead turned on him and was, and, and allowed the superintendent he was, he was pointing out fire him. He ended up wound up with his family, uh, literally homeless living down by the river in a shack down by the river uh the, that uh, same uh what do you call it superintendent was later l- later on became so corrupt that he ended up having to flee with his mistress down to mexico uh so richard was right about that and he tried to get back into the bia but they still wouldn't let him even though it he was proven right um and so when he was literally uh i mean to, to, to eat just to have sustenance he was catching fish in the river and that was how he was feeding his family. And as winter started, to stay, and he was still stubborn. He's just like, no, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to go corrupt. I'm not going to do anything that, that I, you know, breaks my moral code or whatever until winter was starting to set in. And if you've ever seen a, a winter in Nebraska, it's really cold. And he was afraid for his family. So that's when he finally went back to the Capone family. And then he came back from Chicago with like a nice new suit and a whole, and a, literally a, a handful of cash. So what do you hope people take away from the book? You know, that's a good question. I mean, for me, in, you know, first and foremost, I was just like, this is a really fascinating story. I'd like you to learn from it. But of course, as a, every time that I write a book, I then end up being fulfilled with something and, you know, learning something from it. Uh, and, you know, I think a big part of it, I hate to make it about Al because it's, it's really, this is supposed to be a book about Richard and things he did right. Um, but also just how people wind up, and I guess this goes for both of them, him and Al, because uh, it's very much of a story of that brotherhood, uh, how somebody winds up getting into a certain path in life and, you know, goes down that direction and to sort of understand 
not just where they are on the path, but where that path comes from. Um, also, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I, I want people to understand about uh, the Italian American community as well. I mean, you know, one thing that I wanted to publish this traditionally, but I could not get this uh, uh, published traditionally through a regular publisher. And the reason was, that was always given to me was, well, this is about an Italian American who's not a gangster, so we don't want to publish it. So that's why I ended up independently publishing was literally because of the very bigotry that caused Al to become a gangster to begin with. Uh, and so now it, it feels so good. Have, uh, there are several people who have come to me as Italian saying this uh, book has helped me feel some pride in my community. Whereas because every book comes out, it's either about Al or about some other Italian American gangster. And for once, here's something that, you know, there's a hero. Uh and I and I I didn't understand when I started this book I didn't understand why this story hadn't been published yet and then after trying to get it published with the traditional publishers I found out why it hadn't because they they're stuck in this mentality the very mentality that, that caused all this to begin with which was you know well they're they're all gangsters so you know we're we're just going to perpetuate the stereotype so I'd like to help break that stereotype. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, and uh, the way that that was found, because we had, we knew that he had met her, because it, basically what we'd known was there was a flood. He went and he rescued her from that flood, and then they were married within a few months, which is like you know such a standard uh, what do you call it Western kind of story. Then one day, Corey, who was the uh, grands no great grandson. Uh, of Richard, he found the uh, he found this article that told the story in detail, and I couldn't believe it. He said it to me, so he's he, he had uh, gone out with them, and I think he was dating uh, Kathleen at the, at the time. He was with her, her mother, and her brother, uh, and they're driving uh, they're driving back home. It started to rain. Uh, they find this little girl along the road, so she j jumps in with them, and they're continuing on. But the the, uh, the rains come down so hard, and they're nearby creeks. They overfill, and it starts to flood. And the car gets picked up and starts to float away. And so the mother, like, reach, uh, tries to sort of stop. She, like, gets her foot out there and tries to stop the car from, you know, drifting. She gets swept away. The brother jumps in to try to help her. He gets swept away another way. The little girl, just for good measure, she falls out, goes a different way. And so Richard jumps out, saves the little girl, takes her to a hill, uh, swims out there, saves the brother, saves the mother, then grabs the car and drags it to the hill. Uh, <laughs> And needless to say, Kathleen was impressed and married him a couple months later. <laughs> Your newest book, I should say now, is Dirty Old War, and that's the tales of Vietnam, and we touched off on that. So what was the, again, what was the purpose of this? Like, what, what is it that you hope to come up with for people when they read it? You know, I, what I would really like people to see is various perspectives both about this war and in general, I think there's a there, there's a difficulty in our culture to understand other perspectives. And one of the things that is particularly as I wrote this book, one thing that kind of started infuriating more and more and more is the impression that we've always gotten either completely one impression or completely the other, especially with the Vietnam War. I think one of the biggest things about the Vietnam War from the American perspective is that uh, our culture changed. We went from being a very propagandist sort of, you know, like you look at the newsreels at the beginning of the war and it's on the march. Da, 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 we're doing the right thing. Everything's perfect because America does all these perfect things. By the end of the war, it's completely reversed the other way. And it's like American can do no right. 
everything we do is is garbage. We're we're horrible people, and and you know this whole thing was was a terrible thing. We never should have been helping the South Vietnamese. And I know a lot of these people from South Vietnam, and it's really an insult to them to be like, no, this is a waste. We should never should have helped. It's like we we help, we we went to help a group of people, and yes, we did everything. We did a lot of things wrong. Like most of the things we did wrong, we did we did wrong. But the the very act of trying to help a group of people was not in itself wrong, uh, especially when you find out a lot of the things that the North Vietnamese did once they took. I mean, America kind of forgets about Vietnam once we went out. Oh, it's like it stopped to exist. No, the North Vietnamese went in there and slaughtered tons and tons of people. Uh, Khmer Rouge, while they weren't in Vietnam, they were right next door. And that's when you look at what the horrible things they did, you understand that kind of all came from the same area and, and uh, mentality and you can get an idea of just what horrible things people had to go through i and I, I talked to some of the survivors people who came out of that and witnessed for themselves some of the horrible things that happened so it's it, to to say it's all one way or all the other is uh, a complete fallacy um so i want what i'm hoping is not that people come out going it was right for us to go in there or that it was wrong for us to go in there but rather to understand the various perspectives and understand that this was so much more complicated uh, and to understand, you know, like if you, if somebody's, you know, total poor war, we were doing the right thing to understand from the perspective of somebody who lost everything because we, you know, because they were forced to go in there when it, it wasn't something they should, they should be involved in at all. Or, but if somebody's completely anti-war against that war to understand the perspective of a South Vietnamese person who was literally rescued because some of our people went in there and helped them, you know, get out. Uh, it's just, there's so much more to the story. And because typically when books are written and moves are made, it's all one way we were, you know, we were totally justified or all the other, we were completely in the wrong. And no, the Vietnam War is, is absolutely one of the most complex things uh, that you could possibly study. Oh, I'd imagine, you know, I, you see it from all sides, but, um, I, I would think that this would be a little bit controversial in a way yeah. uh, to kind of talk about this because you're right when you're within the the border walls of the U.S. Uh, and and you even look at the movies and and everything it's it's almost like a propaganda in a sense it's all you know uh, the freedom and all this stuff that um, the U.S. has gone to war for so you you do only get one side um, if you go to Vietnam it's totally a different point of view there because they were there they lived it yeah you know and also actually one thing i i probably should have led with this as well because my my book dirty old war is not a political piece it is not about uh the big picture whether it was right or wrong we went in or anything like that it was, it's completely in 100 percent just the stories and i try to be as objective as possible just go here's this person's story here's what, what they went through here's this person's story here's what they went through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to tell people what to think. I want people just to see the various perspectives. So more than anything, I want them to come back with those perspectives, but I want them to understand those various perspectives tell different parts of, of it. I don't want people to look at, because people do have a tendency of looking at just what matches their preconceived notions. It's like, I already believe this way and see, this proves me right. Then they'll ignore the next part, which, which points out some things they may not want to hear. I want people to listen to every part, the parts they may agree with and the parts they may disagree with and the parts they just didn't know. Um, to me, that's more important than anything. Yeah, you know, I, I, 
it's not very political in the U.S. right now, so. <laughs> it never is. You know, yeah. yeah it, it, might, it might help them to get on board and start thinking about politics for a right. change. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. So basically, you're just telling the story from a from a human perspective. It's like this is this is what it was like for me. This is what it was like for us, like the people you're talking to. So, um, you know, there's there's it's not really about politics in that case. It's it's just a personal story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I mean that's really any it, all history is a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, even when you're talking about a a war between, you know, a million people on each side. It's a million different stories. Um, and each one of them together uh, brings together the one story. What do you think the most surprising of the stories was for you? Like from, from what you had as a perspective of living in, and being born in the U.S. and all that stuff, and then what you know, and then once you've talked to people, what, what was different? That is a really good question. Uh, I'd say, I mean, obviously, in anything in South Vietnam, uh, like just how bad things got after the North Vietnam. Like, I, I expected it to be bad. Like, it's, you know, it, it's going to be an adjustment of the new government. I didn't expect the slaughter that, that happened. Uh, I didn't expect, I mean, like, uh, that friend of mine, or the royal, uh, member of the royal family, the other, the ones who were caught just because they were descendants of a, of a royal family that had, that had, wasn't even um, that had abdicated the thro throne, even just the fact of their lineage, they were buried alive, and that was how they died was smothering in that way. Um, uh, you know, although I was also then it was fascinating. Actually, you know, probably one of the biggest surprises was then learning the history because through that I then went back and like learned the history of this royal family, and and that of course then was part and parcel with the history of Vietnam. And how you always hear about is this, this uh, rivalry or the, the troubles they've had go back, you know, a long time. But it's, it, so it's not that a surprise to learn that these things went back a long time. It was just a surprise to learn the details about them, about how, uh, how there had al always been like this struggle between various, you know, various groups of people in the North and in the South. Uh, the, the, the country Vietnam literally means North and the South, or I mean, it's, it's a, Viet was, was, I think Viet was south and Nam was north or something like that, or it was the regions that were there. And so it, and so the name of that country is literally unity of the north and the south. And so when you, when you understand that one thing, the very fact that the, the literal country name is unity, you can understand then why there's so much of a push that we want to be together. Uh, and that, not everybody felt that way, of course, but they're, you know, I, I came to understand why there were people who were so obsessed with that. Um, then, of course, yeah, the, a lot of what, what happened after we left, because, of course, we, you know, there's this attitude in, in the U.S. of once we left, everything was good. It was all, you know, and that's, it's funny because that, that side of the, of the coin, of the political coin, usually thinks of themselves as being caring of others. Because look how caring we are because we brought the soldiers back. But it's like, yeah, but in so doing, you've completely ignored the fact that all these people are going to be slaughtered. And there's this sort of selfishness of we're just going to ignore the fact that all these people are now going to go through, you know, terrible hell. Um, so yeah, that was very fascinating. And also oddly enough, some of the stories of American soldiers were some of the most surprising, which you wouldn't think because it's like, well, we've heard American soldier stories all the time, but there are some of these stories that you wouldn't 
uh, they're just so so bizarre. You would think, oh, well, why didn't I hear about that, before, that that type of thing before? Like for instance, one of them, he's talking about when his unit was out there in the middle of the wo- uh, middle of the jungle, just no civilization anywhere, and then they come up on this trail, and there is a table set up that looks like it's straight out of a palace. I mean, straight out of like Louis the Fourteenth, you know, like the the finest dining. And the food was hot, like they had just served it. And the, it, it's just, it belonged out of a castle, but somebody had schlepped all this, this long, beautiful table, the tablecloth, the chairs, everything, and just placed it right out there in the middle of the jungle somewhere. Um, it's weird, weird stories like that, that I, you know, were just so surprising and so odd. Like when you cover something like this, um, do you ever get the feeling that, um, you know, the old saying that history repeats itself when we don't remember. Does that, does that still, does that mean more to you now? Yeah, well, in fact, the spoiler alert, the very last line is uh, is that. I, I, that was exactly why I chose that particular story. There's a guy named uh, Glenn, who is, it's an American Marine. Um, and I chose to have his story last specifically because one of his quotes was, after that, he became a nurse, after Vietnam, he became a nurse. He was a Marine uh pilot during Vietnam, but then he became a nurse and he was involved in, I believe it was the first Gulf War. And as he saw things starting and there being a lot of chaos and all that sort of thing, he, his, his first thought was, where have I seen this before? And that's, that's the last line of the book. Because you're, you, yeah, it's, as long as we don't understand shades of gray, we will get ourselves into these things over and over and over again. And I, I don't, you know, it's like a lot of people I mean, I consider myself more more politically left, but one thing that I get frustrated by is a lot of times on the left, uh, my fellow, um, you know, a lot of my friends will think that, yeah, you know, we'll by just uh, by just thinking this way, we'll avoid this sort of thing. It's like even just thinking completely on that side, you're not avoiding these things happening because any time that you think purely black and white, purely one way or the other. Uh, these sort of things are going to happen. What, one thing, what people need to understand is that there are always shades of gray. Yeah. I guess that's the theme of today. <laughs> There's always shades of gray. And, we, and it helps to under, <laughs> when you see all the different perspectives, Absolutely. that's when you understand how much of a shade, how much everything is in shades of gray. So. Yeah. I think, I think I worry more because each generation that comes up, um, and, you know, even I, I can relate to myself coming up in the, in the 60s and 70s and thinking that um, you know it all, but you don't. And there's there's a lot that you don't get because you don't experience it. So, um, you know, you hear a lot of people complain about different things in today's state, but they, you know, they're, they're missing what really where it all came from. Yeah. And, and I yeah. that's a problem, you know. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes feel bad about the, some of the, the points of view I have, because, like, if I was of age, at the, I mean, I was born right when Vietnam was sort of coming to a close. But, uh, you know, if I was of age at that time, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to have to, you know, get everything on and, and go over there and have to fight and all that sort of thing. Uh, so who, who am I to say, you know, they, that, some, that some of the things we we're doing was occasionally the right thing? Um, I mean, ultimately, it's it, like I say, it's very complicated, and there's you know, there are some wrong things, some right things, that sort of thing. But if I'm going to say, hey, you know, some of what some of what they were doing was was saving people, I, you know, I should. Who am I to say that if I myself wouldn't have wanted to go over there? 
Um, but to me, it was more important in, in today's uh, looking back is to is, is simply to understand that those people who did go over there to sit to act like, oh, it was a waste what you guys went and did. That's that that's a very unkind way of looking at it. You know, it's like because they, a lot of them, their friends died for something. And it's like it's better to understand there was, you know, even though the U.S. did mess a lot of things up and there was, there was a lot of problems with the with that war, the to to look at it purely from it was a waste is really it's rude to a lot of the uh, the veterans who gave so much and some everything, uh, and it's rude to some of the South Vietnamese who were rescued from you know some of the situation and all sort of things. So um, I, I certainly don't want to come across sounding pro war, but at the same time I also uh, think it's it's wrong to look at it just purely from oh it's a waste and and make people feel like what they sacrificed was for nothing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think it's important that um, you know the the biggest problem with today is there's that generalization of you know even when you say left and further left and right, you're just generalizing right. people. And even with war, right, um, to say right or wrong, I think it's individual. I think there were people that did things for the wrong reason, and there are people that did things for the right reason. And I think you get a mix of all of that in there, you know, because you have a lot of hands in when you get into a war like Vietnam, a lot of government and military, and then uh, there's so many people involved that have an influence on what goes on. When you come down to the very bottom of it, um, all that really matters is the personal experience and, and what people took away you know what what they were left with i mean that war touched a lot of people you know i remember seeing things um you know you know people that were injured or or hurt and coming back from that war soldiers and and how they were you know spit on and how you know there were so many things but you know without even taking about a blame or a big picture you just look at it individually um you know two people that were doing something for different reasons, and yet how there's a conflict over it, it's a really tough thing. I don't think there's a real good answer to it. There's just, you have to experience living through it, I think, to, to, to understand the influence it has on each person rather than, you know, blaming a president or blaming a, a military person or any of that stuff. It's, it's much deeper. Right, exactly. And that's why, yeah, I kind of stammered going through this because of the fact that it's like, it, it is so difficult to say, like, World War II, you can easily say, yes, we needed to go there. Uh, you know, Korea, well, you know, we like it, it, whether it was coming out of South Korea nowadays, you know, you need to be there. Vietnam, if, if I'm sounding like, you know, yes, it was right for us to go there. That, no, not so fast. I, I, I don't mean that either. It's, it is just so complicated. Uh, I just, I so often hear you know so much of one way or the other of like oh it was all a waste or oh it was all good and it's like now nah, it was you know, it's way more complicated and just like you say it's the individual stories and actually you touched on one thing that i i should have said this is one of the things that surprised me the most uh when the soldiers were brought back and when refugees were brought back uh the soldiers were brought back to san francisco the ref the vietnamese refugees were brought back to alabama like what? How does that make sense? <laughs> when I was like, whoever did that either was a major practical joker or does not understand American culture. 
or they did, but they wanted a, an outcome. You know, that's kind yeah. of, I think that's kind of where people get mixed up because, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at Jane Fonda and then, and, the, the controversy she had, and there's people that still hate her to this day, but then there's people that think she did, was amazing. And I just, I, and I look at these things and I think, well, how can, how can you hate someone you don't know or love someone? You just got to look at them as they, they did, they made a personal choice at the time, uh, just like soldiers that went, just like everything, or to, to blame Nixon or to blame, there's so many things that people like to, I guess it's easier to wrap it up and just blame that person. It's all that right. person's fault, and it just makes right. it easier. But there's so many angles, and I think that's the important thing of the book. I think the book's showing, you know, just the people that are living through all of these choices that have been made by governments and, and military and stuff, and what, what the effect is on their life. And I think that's the important part. Yeah. Oh, and ironically, I've actually met Jane Fonda. I, I didn't talk to her about this, but she's a complex, just like you say, she's a complex person, as, as all people are. And, you know, people look at this one moment in history where she may have said the wrong things and all that, but certainly, the you know, that's many years ago, and, and the way she is now is a much more complex person, sees uh, issues in general from various points of view. Yeah, um, yeah. I just, I just yeah. can't look back and hate someone from 50, 50 years or 60 years ago or whatever for something, choices people were making because they thought they were doing the right thing. Right. I, I just kind of look at, well, you know, um, it's easy to look back and, and kind of go, oh, well, you shouldn't have done this. Yeah. yeah. Well, then well, pe- people evolve. And also, even from looking at that point of view, uh, at that time, if one looks at it from her point of view, you may still disagree with it, but you can see where somebody was coming from. It's again where this war is so complex. It's uh, when you completely look at it from from the point of view of someone like her, you can see the frustration. It's like you know, hell with this. These people need to stop being bombed. You look at it from a you know Vietnamese point of view, and the fact that they're like, look, our name literally means unity. We should be together. But you look at it from a South Vietnamese point of view, and it's like. I just want to live and I don't want to be, you know, massacred by these, uh, and I don't want somebody, you know, the communists to be looking over my shoulder and telling me what I can and can't do every day. And then you look at from a, an American soldier who's like, look, I had dreams. I don't, I don't want to go over to this tiny little country and, you know, do these things. But then they get there and they see some wrongs happening and they help them. Uh, you know, they do their best to try to, you know, help, uh, whoever they see and they come back and they spit on and, and call baby killers. So it's just, it's all these different perspectives, which makes it very fascinating, but people need to have humanity and start understanding yeah. that it's, it's yeah. different points of view. Oh, for sure. So. And, and, and um, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's very, very difficult. But uh, we're, we're <laughs> glad we have people like you writing then. And <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So now you have a website or a place that you like people to come and, and – send you dirty letters and attack you? <laughs> yes, it's uh, bandwagononline.com. It's basically my uh, independent publishing, you know, uh, wing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's where I have all my stuff. I actually have a book coming out. The, the third part of the serial comes out, what, two days? Yeah, that's right. It's um, oh, three days, April 1st, uh, called Relic Worlds. It's just basically like Indiana Jones, but in space. Um and uh, but yeah, you can find all my books there, nonfiction, fiction, 
all that on bandwagononline.com. And uh, Shades of Grey, right? <laughs> yes, I'm very much all shades of grey. All shades of grey. Ah, yeah. Uh, so, so if you, oh, but not 50 shades of grey. No. Yeah, if you want to see, you want to see Jeff's 50 shades, just go, uh, just go to this website and he's there for you. Um, I'm looking at it right now and like one of my covers has sort of a sexy look and it's like, Oh man, if they go there expecting that, they're going to be very disappointed because it's, it's actually a look at the uh, at prostitution and some of the difficult lives of a lot of these prostitutes. So it's like, yeah, no, no, you're not going to get sexy Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever. Oh, well, anyway, well, uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you for being yeah, on the show, you. and um, we'll have all thank that on our website. So our guest has been Jeff MacArthur. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.